Welcome to Regal's RightCast, where we share all things LIDAR. I'm Miranda Welke, Marketing Events Coordinator for Regal USA. This series features interviews with industry experts from around the world, innovative LIDAR applications, best practices, workflow advice, and even exciting news about hardware and software. The podcasts are produced by Regal at their North American headquarters located in Central Florida and available worldwide through our Regal newsroom on www.regal.com. Please visit our website to subscribe to the newsroom. Simply input your email address and click. It's that easy. The regal.com website is a great place to find detailed information on the many LiDAR scanning hardware, firmware, and software products that Regal provides, or request more information or a call from a Regal specialist. In another episode of Road Trips with Josh, please welcome today's guest, Jerry Dewitt, Systems Engineering Manager for GeoDigital. Join Jerry and Josh as these two dive into the world of LiDAR and how GeoDigital is helping their customers with the use of Regal's elite scanners. Please enjoy. Well, welcome back to RyeCast, everyone. My name is Josh France, and today's trip takes us to Houston, Texas, where I'll be chatting with a longtime Regal user and integration expert, Jerry Dewitt. He has been working with kinematic LiDAR integration since 2002. He first started at TerraPoint, an early adapter of the new LiDAR technology coming out of Regal in the very early 2000s and almost late 1990s. He then moved to GeoDigital, where he has led many integrations and created a standardization of their workflows. GeoDigital has been a longtime Regal customer and partner integrating systems, including the LMS Q560, up to the present day with several brand new VUX scanners, including the brand new VUX120. That's the triple scan pattern sensor for those that may not know. GeoDigital has been a leader in providing customer-based solutions to utility clients for over 25 years. Their headquarters is in Atlanta, Georgia, with offices out in Lampoak, California, and a software division up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and of course, Houston, Texas. And that's where Jerry is joining us today. For more information on GeoDigital, please visit their website at geodigital.com. And for more information about Regal, always check out regal.com or follow us on our many social media sites. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome my friend and colleague, Jerry Dewitt to RyeCast. Thanks for taking some time to catch up and talk about your unique experience with GeoDigital. Thanks for having me on today. So we'll get right into it here. When talking about LiDAR sensor integrations, everyone wants to know, what's one of the biggest challenges you've faced with integrating LiDAR sensors? Well, thankfully, over the years, the Regal sensors have come a long ways to making integrations simpler for us. Um, The one thing that always seems to challenge my team is when we run that first data set through, did we get our calibration parameters in the right ballpark? Sure. I don't know how many times we've had guys have to mentally, you walk through the hallways and they've got left-handed rules going and they're trying to figure out all their rotations mentally, trying to get those initial parameters in there, which that's a a nice thing if that's the only problem they're trying to solve. Very true. 
calibrations are always a challenging aspect of any uh, integration where you're trying to tweak that foresight alignment between the scanner and the INS GPS system. What kind of tips and tricks do you have that you could share with the uh, audience today on RyeCast? One of the things that my guys have found really helpful in figuring that out is they've ended up 3D printing a set of axes, XYZ coordinate system for both their scanner and then one to define the INS coordinate frame. And they just use that to then rotate through rather than trying to contort their wrist into orientations that a wrist was never intended to go into. (laughs) Oh, yes. The mental gymnastics of trying to figure out the rotation matrices is always a fun challenge. Uh, I used to get a lot of calls while I was driving somewhere with those random questions of, how do I rotate this sensor frame into that IMU frame? And uh, got really good at it. So it's uh, always good practice. Now, once you get the data collected, how about the back-end calibration process of fine-tuning those alignments? So what we've found is kind of our easiest, best approach is to, even if it's not our standard practice for production, but to load that data into ride process and utilize the scan alignment tools that you guys have built up to take in those overlapping flight lines, Mm -hmm. detect those common points and planes, and then clean up that final foresight. Compared to the approach that is mathematically the same that I worked with years ago, just the workflow and ease of use and ride process just can't be beat there. Yes, it's been a great tool that's been evolving uh, over time. So have our workflows to help users accomplish those foresight alignments. So what's the most rewarding part of your job at Digital these days? I actually just had somebody else from our management team asked that question the other day. And I think being pretty squarely situated in the utilities vertical market brings a lot of satisfaction knowing that the data we deliver and the products that get delivered to customers have a direct impact on everyday life for people, be it you know, increasing current ratings on existing infrastructure or figuring out a optimized vegetation management program so that when that winter storm comes through, or for you and I, it's probably a bigger concern with hurricanes coming through, there's less damage to that critical infrastructure. Yes, that, that would definitely be rewarding to know that you're helping with the power grid survivability or hardness rating, I suppose, would be the right technical term for being able to harden those systems against uh, the dreaded hurricane season that's rapidly approaching here in Florida and uh, the Gulf. A lot of times, everyone associates geodigital with aerial acquisitions. I remember many years ago now, going to an IMLF and seeing the geodigital rapid deployment semi-truck trailer with a helicopter getting pulled out from it where you guys could rapidly go and collect data. But I think a lesser known area, of course, is that you also have several mobile systems. So can you tell us a little bit more about your mobile systems? Yeah, so we just kind of stepped back from that. Um, Everybody does recognize us historically as that aerial company. Sure. Several years back, we developed a mantra in our organization of digitize, analyze, and work. So at the end of the day, we approach every project as how can we digitize the data for the customer, analyze what they want, and get the work package that they want to result from that. So along those lines, we moved from just being a strictly aerial system operator to now we have a 
set of mobile systems that we can go out and collect the same information that we get from the airborne in terms of LIDAR data, but from the ground. And that brings with it the opportunity to collect really detailed imagery of that infrastructure that you can't get from a flight at 500 or 1500 feet AGL. Um, you know, we look at it not as we're an aerial company, we're providing a solution. And sometimes that solutions, that helicopter system that we're known for, sometimes it's a fixed wing solution with our 1560. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a mobile mapping solution, just depending on what the customer's actual end goal is. Sure, that's a good lead into my next question. So uh, you mentioned digitalization. So you're talking digitalizing every power line in America, or is it more subtle than that? It's actually a lot more detailed than that. One of the big moves that we're seeing, um, particularly on the distribution side of the business, is utilities for years, whenever, especially on their distribution network, put up poles, put up wires, didn't have a lot of detail as to where those assets were or how they were connected. And we started to see as we're moving into advanced distribution systems, be it for outage management purposes or distributed uh, generation, they need to know a lot more detail about their distribution network in terms of what sort of ampacity is on those lines, how are things connected, what's downstream of every protective device so they can either decide to reroute some customers based on the load that we're going to start seeing drawn due to the electrification of things like vehicles and the some in some locations moving away from natural gas into electric appliances. So there's a whole lot of work that's going on at the kind of the distribution level that needs a lot of information that we haven't historically had for distribution customers um, and that they don't hold in their legacy systems. So just to be uh, clear for all those that may not be as familiar as you and I are with the terminology here, distribution networks, uh, from my understanding, that's like your neighborhood power setup where you have the poles and the data going to the homes directly. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So in the electric utility world, you've got transmission and distribution. Um, transmission are all the big towers that you see that run from a power plant to a smaller substation. Uh, the distribution network are the small wires that run along the streets in your in front of your house, in your alleyways, or in more recent developments, depending on where you are, even underground as well. Yeah. Well, that's a good question because I don't, I have all my power lines in my neighborhood are underground, uh, except for the ones like just outside it. Are you also getting into that kind of detection as well? For the underground, um, it's kind of a two-pronged approach sure. for us in terms of locating those assets. That's actually typically a aerial collect um, because it's in people's backyards um, and off of public right-of-way. So we can't always drive those with a mobile system. Interesting. Um, but they're large enough that you can see and recognize in photos. So we can pull in that accurate geospatial location for it. And if there's a question in terms of doing an asset inspection on that piece of equipment, then it's a dispatch a field technician that is certified to open a vault or open a transformer if that's what's required for the task at hand. Okay, so the aerial data really sets the stage for limiting how much uh, underground utility detection work needs to be done on the back end. Is that correct? 
And typically the underground is a relatively new construction. Um, so thought was put into documenting it before it was put into the ground. So a lot of times the underground portion is pretty well known. Um, it's just that final riser that goes from the aerial side to where it enters the underground service that um, is the missing gap for a lot of customers. Very interesting. So uh, speaking of utility information, what, so you mentioned there's a lot of different things that are required. So are you, when you look at a utility pole, I mean, what are the main things uh, your clients are asking for? Are they just want to see that there's a pole there and there's some wires connected to it or, you know, how, how much further down do they go? Well, the, the first level that every distribution customer struggles with is even where is the pole. Uh, in North America, we see that their databases might be off, you know, 10, 20 yards. Not a, not a big discrepancy. It gets the alignment to the pole. He's within 20 yards of it. He can see which one has the blown transformer on it. In other parts of the world um, where populations are less dense than they are in parts of the U.S., sure. Um, we've seen utilities that don't know where their pole is within a kilometer. Oh wow! Which is a little a little frightening. Um, but uh, once they get past the just where are my poles, you know it can really vary quite a bit from customer to customer. Um, some customers we have they want to know what wires are on it in terms of what size conductor, what is the conductor material. Um, is it phase A, phase B, or phase C that happens to be here, or is it all three phases? Um, are there any transformers on this pole? If there is a transformer on the pole, what's the rating of that transformer? Uh, another thing that is I found interesting when we first started working with a customer in western Pennsylvania is street lights are really important. They get reimbursed by the municipality for the cost of providing power to the street lights they don't always know how many streetlights there are on their network. And then for one customer, we were able to provide them an accurate list of streetlight inventory, which covered a good portion of the actual acquisition cost oh, wow. um, just in recovering lost revenue. And then, you know, it kind of runs the full gamut from that. Um, you know, just because we can do all of those for a customer, it may not be what they're after. They could just be after where do I have wires and um, sure. where do I not have wires? All the way down to building that full connectivity model um, as we're starting to see customers move into Esri's uh, utility network model where they need to know how customers are actually connected to the grid. Yeah, and so most of this information you are able to extract directly from LiDAR information, but I would guess that there's some information that you can't see from a LiDAR point cloud. How do you account for that? Correct. So, and it comes down to tailoring our acquisition plan um, for the project at hand. So, it typically, once we extract what we can from the LIDAR, which is really good at giving us that 3D coordinate around where something is in the world. Um, but I'm never going to read a poll tag that tells me this is poll number 127 from the LIDAR. So, what we do is then choose the system that gives us the imagery that's needed to solve that sort of problem. So for one of our customers on a distribution project, we ended up flying the entire network uh, with our Q1560 
that gave us a base map that told us where all the wires, all the poles were. And then we quickly went through with our mobile mapping system, which has a spherical camera array on it um, that captures on the order of a half a million pixels a second. Wow. That allows the allows some an, an educated, trained lineman sitting at their desk to basically virtually visit every pole in that network, read a pole tag if one's present, uh, read the transformer rating, note if there's any defects on that transformer. Is it leaking its oil? Are there any terminals that are loose or corroded on it? And, you know, it's choosing the airborne side to get us that very accurate, very easy to process geolocation information for the assets. And then that mobile data coming through at 500 million pixels a second to really zoom in and pick up what's finer than what a LiDAR sensor is ever going to allow us to see. Well, great. Yeah. So certainly a lot of information there that you can gather. And the uh, the, the merging of imagery with uh, LiDAR is very key to uh, getting the whole picture. Right. Uh, and it sounds like you have a great camera solution that you've put together there uh, to accomplish that. Uh, that's always a fun challenge, but it just shows the importance of cameras uh, to our integration work, which is what we focus on a lot with our latest VMX 2HA system and providing various camera look angles for different applications, especially the utility market. However, we, we aren't quite to the uh, million pixels a second uh, benchmark that you've set there, but we're working. Yeah, no, it's, we struggled for years to find what is the right balance of where do you look at with the cameras how often do you take those photos and for better or worse we came up with the the sledgehammer approach of just look everywhere there's a lot of data but you can't miss it if you look that way so your it department absolutely loves it when you uh propose this type of solution i assume we typically try to get them in at the last second so that they can't object (laughs) that's a good strategy we'll all have to keep that in mind all right, uh, time for some rapid fire questions here. All, All right. right. So, favorite Regal sensor? I'm going to have to go with the Q560. Ooh. To me, that really marked a change in how you integrate a sensor for Regal. The old Q560. Yeah, that's uh, that's been a favorite of many folks uh, in the Regal verse that have been around a long time. So, all right, best or favorite work location you've been to? I'm going to have to go with my my old trusty. Southern Ontario. The weather just can't be beat during the summer, and I personally don't mind the cold. So even working there in the winter has been enjoyable. All right. Most interesting request? I think the most interesting request over the years has was a request to, in real time, generate a point cloud on a moving vehicle with enough accuracy and repeatability that you could do scene-to-scene comparisons. That is interesting. Yeah, it had a a very interesting application um, and had a lot of technical challenges. It seems benign and fairly trivial today when you think about all the autonomous driving guys going around driving LiDAR sensors and cameras. But we were asked to do that in 2009, um, so it was a bit trickier of a problem over a decade ago. That makes it feel like a really long time ago when you say over a decade ago, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) All right. So that's an interesting challenge. Now I'm looking at the challenging challenge. Like, what was the, like, you're like, no way we're going to solve this with today's technology or at all. What's the most challenging problem you've solved? 
So that one, I think, hands down goes to some work that we did previously in Australia. We were given the the challenge to support a pre-summer bushfire program to inspect every pole on a customer's distribution network. And that required us taking very accurate LIDAR to report vegetation clearances and at the same time take very high-resolution imagery to confirm that there's no defects on those assets. And just geolocating a camera that's held by an operator in the backseat of a helicopter in a, we'll just call it GPS hostile environment with sufficient accuracy to know what pole was actually captured to be able to report any defects, but also to be able to confirm and, you know, give the customer the confidence that every pole was in fact actually inspected since that does carry a legal regulatory consequence for them if they can't make a defensible statement that every asset had been inspected. That is challenging, for sure. So it's a camera operated by someone in the backseat of a helicopter. Awesome. Yeah, so they would spend hours flying around with the the rear door off trying to figure out exactly where the pole is that they're supposed to be taking a picture of. (laughs) You might remember the previous conversation where the utility didn't know where some of their poles were within a kilometer. Ah, yes. So a lot of times it was a, a hunt and look for the pole that was actually should be inspected. So. Wow, that definitely is a tall order for sure. Were you the uh, camera photographer? No, I was only responsible for figuring out how to put a system together to achieve the goal and then deal with when it invariably doesn't work the, the first few days out the gate. All right, sure, yeah. All right, well, thanks very much for all this great insight into the problems of the past uh, and present. But uh, where do you see the geospatial industry headed in the future? I think we're headed in a direction where there's more pervasive geospatial information out there. More and more of our lives are getting tied up in terms of where things are. So if you look back, you know, 10, 12 years ago, you know, we didn't all have ready access to maps in our pocket that are very detailed, um, that gets you from point A to point B with you know, an optimized set of directions. You know, and similarly, you see the same thing even in recreational activities, the sheer amount of geospatial information that's available to people like that are avid hikers or avid hunters. That all comes from our industry and it's making its way down into everybody's daily life in ways that not everybody recognizes. And I just see that trend continuing as we start building a, a more accurate and a more detailed digital twin of the world around us. Yeah, the digital twin world is definitely a, a big up and coming uh, reality. And I think really the the key technology that will enable the, the spread in my mind uh, isn't necessarily on the gathering side, but the uh, how a user interacts with it. We're still, you know, you need your desktop computer or a really good internet connection to see everything in a full you know, almost 2D way right now, but we really need that immersive 3D uh, visualization aspect to become more a part of our daily interaction with uh, the world of technology and geospatial information. I, I feel like we're getting there, but we're not quite ready yet. Yeah, I think you're you're really on the, the point there. It's, you know, one thing for us in the industry to go collect it. You know, Regal provides great tools mm-hmm. for us to go do that side of it. 
Um, but, you know, definitely the visualization and how do you make it useful, you know, rem- away from that desktop so that when you're out in the field, any information you need that was previously collected is actually accessible and usable to you where you need it and when you need it. Yeah, one of the cool features at our new building here in Winter Garden is that we actually have a hollow table room, which is produced by the uh, Australian company Euclidean, where we're able to convert point clouds straight into files that are able to be uploaded and viewed on the table. Have you had a chance to see that technology yet? I have not had a chance to see it in person. I've seen demonstrations of it, video demonstrations, um, and it looks really promising. You know, I just haven't had a chance to see it in person. Thankfully, the technology doesn't require uh, stereoscopic vision the way some of the older technology did, because some of us don't actually have stereoscopic vision. So it's always been fun trying to visualize 3D when you don't see it in 3D. Mm. Well, you'll have to uh, plan a visit for Regal USA headquarters here in Winter Garden and uh, stop by and visit our hollow table. And I also know in the upcoming RyeCast of the future, there'll be a hollow table uh, RyeCast done by our typical RyeCast intro guy, uh, Nikita. He'll be uh, talking about the hollow cable in a future episode soon. So look forward to that. I will, and I will definitely have to make it out there. It's been too long since I visited you guys in person. Yeah, you'll have to come and pick up your your 120 from us. How about that? I will make it a plan. All right. Well, great chatting with you, Jerry, this morning. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And thank you very much for your time. All right. Well, thank you for having us on. Yeah, no problem. Always good to uh, touch base with excellent clients and partners in the industry. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in to RideCast. This is Josh France signing off. And uh, remember, take care of one another out there. I'd like to thank Jerry again for joining us today. That was very insightful information to the multiple projects GeoDigital is doing and how they are leaving their imprint with the world. And congratulations on your newly acquired Regal Vux 120 airborne laser scanner. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our RyeCast anywhere you listen to podcasts and the Regal Ultimate LiDAR webinar series through our international newsroom on www.regal.com. You, the Regal users, give us the best stories to tell. We always appreciate your suggestions, so please continue to send us your ideas or comments to communications at regalusa.com. And as always, have an ultimate LiDAR day. Until next time, Miranda signing off.